Well, it's great to be back. Kathy and I spent three, just about three weeks in Israel, and the last part of that was, as Connie mentioned, uh, with a tour. So it was, uh, it was great. In fact, you can't go to Israel and after the fact read your Bible, thank you, without uh, seeing where you were. Like in the service today during the, the baby dedication, Chuck mentioned Hannah, and I thought, oh, that happened at Shiloh. We were there last week. <laughs> he mentioned the Garden of Gethsemane and crossing the Kidron Valley, and thought, oh, well, we were there just last week. He mentioned Jesus, um, you know, predicting Peter's denial. Oh, that was in the upper room on the Western Hill. We were, we were there last week. And then... Um, uh, Janelle mentioning the woman at the well just a little bit ago. We, that happened at Sikar, which was close to Shechem, between Mount Ebal and Gerizim, and we were there just last week. So you can't, you can't read the word without also seeing it. And it's not just so much the warm fuzzies of thinking, well, we were there last week. But what it is is it puts a reality to your faith that uh, gives a big amen to everything that you read in the word that what happened isn't just words on a page, it's not just history, it's not just a story that occurred in some far-off land, but it really happened. In fact, we can go to the very places it happened, and we can be assured and reaffirmed that what we believe um, is not just fingers crossed, but it's reality, and it really occurred. So great to be back, and uh, it's great to be back in the Gospel of Mark. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 2, we'll pick up where we left off last month. I read about the Prince of Granada. He was actually the heir to the Spanish crown, was sentenced to life, unfortunately, <laughs> in solitary confinement in a prison in Madrid. Pretty tough to uh, rule the Spanish crown when you're in in a prison in Madrid, but that's what happened. He, he uh, was confined to that prison, he was there for life, and he was given just one book to read the whole time he was there, and it was the Bible. For 33 years he was imprisoned and he read the Bible hundreds and hundreds of times. And after he died, they came to clean out his cell and they found some notes that he had scribbled on the walls with nails, he had written on the walls of his cell these notes, and I just wrote down a few of them. Here's some of what he wrote. He said, Psalm 118.8 is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or name has more than six syllables in the entire Bible. This is what he got out of it. Trivia. The man spent 33 years reading the Word of God, and yet for all we know, he never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. He simply became an expert at Bible trivia. You know, I doubt that we came this morning to simply uh, bone up on truth so that when we play Bible trivia later on, we'll be all set to win, or simply to, to come to learn something to be challenged mentally. But I hope that you've come with the heart to be challenged spiritually, and in a reality to hear from God. Not to hear from a messenger, not to hear from a hymn, 
but to hear from God. God, the Lord. What does that mean? Honestly, if we're honest, a lot of times what it means is when we come to church and we and the word is opened, our prayer or our hope is, Lord, confirm all of my biases. Lord, would you do me a favor and convict my friend? Father, rub my back today, but please don't change me. The goal, Paul said, of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's not information, it's transformation. And so as we, once again, open the Bible, and as we approach this text that is holy, I just urge you, in the quietness of your spirit and in your heart, you say, Lord, it's not about my biases, it's not about my friend, it's not about just me feeling good or encouraged. Lord, change me. Open my heart to any truth that you want to make me aware of. And not just for truth and trivia's sake, but for change. There was an interesting survey done a few years ago that found that about 80% of Americans call themselves Christian. And yet, only 20% said that Christianity had anything to do with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 80% are Christian, 20% are Christian. And the other 60%, this survey noted, and just summarizing it, said, that a Christian is one who believes in God, goes to church, reads his Bible, gives money, serves in Sunday school, and they don't drink, smoke, cuss, or cheat. In other words, a Christian is one, <laughs> is a Baptist, that's good. A Christian, a Christian is one who adheres to a moral code. And the pastors are those who make sure that the code gets followed. I remember one time there was a, a man who was uh, unfaithful to his wife, and I was one of the ministers that was asked to go and talk with him. And uh, we actually decided to have coffee with him, and so uh, I was sitting in the back seat, and a couple other guys were driving, and so the empty seat next to me was the guy that this man, was the place that this man was going to come sit. Anyway, I guess he kind of surprised him when he opened the door and saw me sitting there. He opened the door and he said, uh-oh, it's the God Squad. <laughs> and immediately I thought, you know what? Take me home because this isn't going to go well. And it didn't go well. Um, and I don't want to get into the details of that except to say, you know, we tend to think that pastor's jobs or to, are to swing clubs and to, uh, to point out the rules that we are to do and that we aren't following. That's not who we are to be. That's not who we are to be at all. And yet that's who Jesus was dealing with in Mark chapter 2. In a very real sense, we could call him the God Squad. Look at uh, verse 23, and we'll pick up right where we've left off. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. 
It happened that while he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So, it's the Sabbath, and they're walking along and eating the heads of grain while they're walking along, and the, the God Squad shows up and says, you're not doing what's lawful on the Sabbath. I found it interesting when we were in Israel, just it's, it's always fascinating. If you're there any length of time, you're going to come across the Sabbath, Saturday, actually Friday evening to Saturday evening is the Sabbath, or Shabbat, as it's called in Israel. And one of the curious parts of the Sabbath, even in Israel today, are what are, what are called Sabbath elevators. They're funny. You don't push a button. You, they just open at every floor by themselves, give you time to scoot in and just stand there, and then door closes and it goes to the next floor and it, it stops at every floor. All, all by itself, and open, the door opens so that you don't have to do any work pushing the button. And yet, you've got to carry your luggage. You've got to put the room key in, but you don't have to push the button. Um, Sabbath. You know what else I found about the Sabbath this time around? They turn off the cappuccino machine. That's going too far. That's going too far. It wasn't that different in Jesus' day either. In their zeal to obey the Sabbath, the Pharisees had a long list of what it meant not to work. <clears throat> and over time, these, these lists became on par with Scripture, and it was eventually codified in what is called the Mishnah. On the Sabbath alone, the Mishnah includes 39 categories of work with six subdivisions each. So this one law about the Sabbath had almost 240 applications, and reaping was one of them. The commandment that God intended for rest, the Sabbath, actually became a lot of work. You think about how hard it is to obey the Sabbath, you've got to remember all these rules. The irony is that the fulfillment of the Sabbath has turned out to be the exact opposite of what God intended it to be, both then and now in Israel. The fulfillment of the Sabbath, the book of Hebrews says that the, there is a Sabbath day that remains for the people of God. There is a Sabbath that remains. And what that means is not referring to Saturday. It's referring to a rest. There is a rest from the law. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus saw the Sabbath as something to meet man's needs and not as a legalistic burden to bear. One of the purposes of the Sabbath, of course, was for refreshment. Jesus would, on occasion, tell his disciples, pull them aside and say, come, let's rest for a little bit so that, so that uh, you can be refreshed. The goal was to meet needs, not to create burdens. But uh, uh, Christ, Christ wasn't against the Sabbath, of course, even though he broke the, the Mishnah's law here, as it were. But he was for the original purpose of the Sabbath. And by the way, what were the Pharisees doing out in the fields to begin with on the Sabbath? Why were they stationed out there? To spy on Jesus Christ. That's not how you keep the Sabbath either. 
So here's the idea of the God Squad. In their zeal to make sure others obey the rules, they themselves break them. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, Have you ever read what David did when he was in need? And how he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he also gave it to those who were with him. Have you ever had anybody ask you that question as a Christian? Have you ever read the Bible? Ooh, that stings. Especially if you pride yourself on knowing the Bible, like these religious leaders did. They said, Jesus, your, your guys are breaking the law. And Jesus said, you ever read the Bible? Because the Bible gives an example of David, who in the time of Abiathar the priest, went in and requested the, the showbread, which was not lawful. Interesting, he used their term. In verse 24, it says, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? In verse 26, Jesus says that David did what is not lawful. And then that phrase is going to come up again here in a little bit. And Christ's point is not that David sinned, though it's interesting if you read that account um, there in 1 Samuel 21, you see that David's whole uh, position of coming to the priest was deceptive, which is ironic. You remember David came to the priest and said, we're on a secret mission, you know, please, but we haven't been given anything to eat. Could you give us something to eat? How about the bread? Well, David wasn't on a secret mission. But the point is, his need was real. And that's what, that's what Jesus was saying. Even though David's motive about approaching it was wrong, his need was real. He was hungry. He had a need. And David's physical need for food ranked higher than the law of him not eating the showbread. And Jesus said, it's okay when one law super, supersedes another law. When the law actually does a person harm, God never intended the law to live and the person to die. We see this with uh, regard to an ambulance. You know, an ambulance can run red lights and break the speed limit. Those laws, uh, the, the law of a person's life supersedes the law of red lights and speed limits. And this is what Jesus was saying about the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath Christ said, uh, is not for the sake of the Sabbath, it's for the sake of people. I remember a, a, prince of, a, a friend of mine one time was driving across the country, and um, he had to go to the bathroom. And so, you know, it was one of those long stretches where there was not a bathroom for a long time. Finally, he sees a service station, pulls off, and, uh, you know, kind of runs in real fast and asks the guy behind the counter, where's your restroom? And the guy behind the counter said, it's for customers only. <laughs> and so my friend said, you know, I could really use a cup of coffee. <laughs> Truth is, he didn't need a cup of coffee, but I'll buy whatever it takes to get, to get me to be able to go to the bathroom. You know, the God Squad is still in Israel. I remember uh, just, you know, a couple weeks ago, Kathy and I were in a particular church. I won't tell you which one. We were there, and we were trying to do some, take some pictures, and the priests in that church were absolutely irate. It was 
it was, uh, I don't say ungodly, it was very unkind, to, to say the least, and really lacked any kind of a Holy Spirit attitude. <laughs> it was really tough. And we just marveled. Here we've got, we're in a church. Here we've got guys that should be, if anything, winsome toward the things of Christ. And if I had not been a believer and had been in that context, that would not have drawn me to Jesus Christ. Very similar to what Jesus was experiencing. The Pharisees are more concerned that the rule be followed than understanding the purpose of the rule. Jesus cites David as an example. His need was real, and so God allowed him to eat of the priests, which in normal circumstances was unlawful. The law was never intended to do harm, but it was intended to do good. Look at verse 27. Jesus basically summarizes his point. He said, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Or literally, you, you could translate it, you might have it in your margin. The Sabbath came into being because for the sake of man and not man for the sake of the Sabbath. Sometimes it helps to, to hear it in a different way. Literally, that's, that's how it reads. The Sabbath came into being for the sake or because for the sake of man and not man for the sake of the Sabbath. Man was created a long time before God created the law of the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath happened the very next day. The point of the Sabbath is to give rest and refreshment to man. And Jesus says in verse 28, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It's a bold statement Jesus makes. Jesus said, He, as Lord, determines what it means to obey the Sabbath. He created it. He knows what it means to obey the Sabbath. And it's actually a violation of the Sabbath not to care for needs rather than to follow all these added traditions that are added on for the sake of tradition. In obeying one part of the law, Christ says, they violated the weightier parts. There's, there's another place in Scripture in the Gospels where Jesus tells them, Woe to you, Pharisees! You pay tithe of every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. So a couple of life principles jump from the text, and here's the first one. We should base our decisions on the whole Bible rather than just our favorite parts. We should base our decisions on the whole Bible rather than just our favorite parts. This is the danger of reading the Bible with the magic finger. A lot of times, you know, when you don't have a lot of time to read and you're just saying, Lord, give me a verse for today. And you'll just let the Bible, you know, flop open and you'll say, I'll just apply whatever it is I read. Well, what if it says Judas hung himself? <laughs> what if you try again and it says, what you do, do quickly? The magic finger, unless you just want to look at the book of Proverbs, that's pretty safe with the book of Proverbs. But otherwise, a verse is in a context. The ultimate context of a verse is its paragraph. The ultimate context of a paragraph is its chapter. The ultimate context of a chapter is its book, is its author, is its testament, is the Bible. 
You don't just read a verse and say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do without thinking about how that verse or that principle is applied all throughout. For example, when Jesus says, ask whatever you want in my name and it will be given you, boy, you could name it, claim it, and do a lot with that verse unless you read it in its context. That's a great example of an author giving a theology of prayer because in the book of John, Jesus said what I just said, but then in the epistles of John, um, John goes on to say that if you pray according to his will. So it's not just a matter of taking a verse, it's taking a context. And this is something the Pharisees didn't do. We need to base our decisions based on the whole Bible and not just on our favorite parts. The Bible is not a buffet where we go along and we just say, you know what, I'm going to take this part of it and I'm going to you know, eat the desserts, but the green bean casserole I'm going to leave over on the side. No, you've got to eat the green bean casserole as well. That's, that's the way it works. So the ultimate context, Jesus says, is the whole Bible. And so Jesus bothered these religious leaders because he threatened the true source of their security. What was the true source of their security? It was rules. The God Squad found their relationship with God in rules. And even today, Judaism as a whole is a religion based on deed, not creed. It is a religion based on activity, not necessarily based on relationship. And uh, Christ, Christ said, you know what, that, that's not the way it needs to be. The Pharisees saw rules as security. You know, having rules as your security with God is like trying to parachute. Instead of a parachute, you, you have a, a sack of uh, concrete on your back. Now, on the way down... It may look exactly the same as the guy next to you who's going down with a real parachute. You know, beautiful day. Hey, how you doing? Doing great. See you soon. But when you pull the ripcord, there is an entirely different experience. If you have rules as the basis of your security rather than relationship, then you're in a tight spot because everybody breaks their own rules. The Pharisees did it, and you know what? You and I do too. When we try to base our security and our relationship with God, we break our own rules. Uh, just last night, <clears throat> we were having a conversation in our house about Romans 1 and 2, just the book of Romans in general. And one of the points that we were talking about is that everybody violates their own standard. And the Pharisees did this. They really did. Their standard was <clears throat> rules, and they broke them. And Christ points that out, points out their hypocrisy. If it were simply a matter of following the rules, I think we would be tempted, <clears throat> as many do, that according to the externals, we're doing pretty well. <clears throat> but externals are not reliable. Because even if on the outside I'm doing great, let's say on the outside I'm doing perfectly, <clears throat> my motive may not be perfect. My motive could be absolutely wrong. The religious leaders believe the lie that you and I believe uh, a lot of times. Oh, not intellectually. We would never say it, but practically we live it. If we obey the rules, if we keep our noses clean, <clears throat> if we live the life that we know is moral, then God is sort of obligated to bless us. 
he's sort of obligated to take care of us, that we're going to have bank balances in the black, that our children are going to be well-behaved, well-adjusted, that our grandchildren are going to grow up to be, you know, something great. But the reality is we don't have any of those promises. Do you have confidence in your relationship with God based on your actions? Like, let me just ask you, before you came to church today, did you have a quiet time? You know you're supposed to. Did you? Did you? Let's take a vote. Let's start, let's start on this side. <clears throat> Wouldn't that be a terrible way to come to church? You fill out your name tag and you check the box whether or not you had your quiet time before you came. You know, if the goal of your Bible reading and my Bible reading is to check a box and say we've done it, <clears throat> then we're no better than the religious leaders. And Jesus could ask us, as Jesus asked them, have you ever read the Bible? Because the goal of our instruction is love. It's life change. It's not just information. It's not trivia. Holy activities aren't an end to themselves. Jesus said you can sum up all the law and the prophets in one word and two commands. One word is love, and the two commands are love God and love people. I'll never forget one of the things that Dr. Toussaint has taught us <clears throat> through the years, I've heard him say it many times, is that you can tell what your relationship with God is like by looking at your relationship with people. Never forgotten that. I don't know that I ever will. And that's hard to hear. If your interpretation of the Bible doesn't allow you to love God and love people, then you really should seriously question your interpretation of Scripture. When somebody asks you about your spiritual life, let me just, let me just crawl into the, the secret place of your heart for a moment. When somebody asks you about your spiritual life, no, let's, do, let's say it this way. When you think about your spiritual life, what comes to mind? You're reading the scripture. You're coming to church. You're giving money. You're serving. Your kind words, <clears throat> what is it? Or is it your relationship with Christ? Um, you can't be justified in God's sight by works, but it's the same true in your daily Christian life. You walk by faith, true, and you love him. You don't just do things. Well, let's continue in chapter 3, verse 1. He entered again into a synagogue. And a blind man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Well, the God Squad follows him now into the synagogue. So we've gone from the, wheat, the grain fields now into the synagogue. And their goal is absolutely the same. They're looking to see if he's going to do a good deed on the Sabbath because you're not supposed to do that. Um, they're watching him. Literally, the, the, the original language says that they are lying in wait for him. Obviously suggests evil intent. But, you know, it's obvious to us, if Jesus could do miracles in God's name, maybe we should listen to him. 
Maybe we shouldn't try to find out him, find him doing something wrong. Maybe we should go, am I wrong for wanting to do this? If he can do miracles, we should listen to him, but not if rules are your standard instead of God's love. Verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Notice he asked that question in verse 4, is it lawful? Remember in verse 24, the previous chapter, they said it's not lawful to do this on the Sabbath. Jesus, in verse 26, said that David did what is not lawful. And now in chapter 3, verse 4, he asks them a question, is it lawful? You want to talk about what is lawful? Let me just ask you, is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? What's the point of the Sabbath? To do good or evil? Well, they're quiet. Why are they quiet? Because they're stuck. There's no answer that they can give that doesn't condemn them. Of course you're not going to do evil on the Sabbath. Of course you're not going to kill on the Sabbath. And yet they're there to watch him if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. They're stuck in their position. So um, he says to the man, get up and come forward. So he has them stand there. And Jesus is about to do a miracle. This kind of a question, is it lawful to do good or evil, is not one that was in their, in their rule book. Um, and so basically, they're in a position where if Jesus does this miracle and heals this man, they're shown to be at fault. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to know as to how they might destroy him. Jesus had asked, is it, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, to save life or kill? And as soon as he saves a life, they go out and plot to kill on the Sabbath. Mark is clearly showing us who's right and who's wrong in this, in this instance. I remember years ago we were at a restaurant and um, they had a no smoking sign, you know, up at the front. And one of my daughters pointed out that the owner was smoking. <laughs> you know, if you live your life for rules, you're going to violate your own standard. Again, Romans 1 and 2 shows that. Paul shows we are all condemned because no matter what your standard is, you violate it. You don't even have to have the Bible and you violate your own standard. Your conscience, he says, bears witness, either condemning or, or accusing you or defending you. The same is true, by the way, in your personal relationships. If you accept others because they follow your rules, then you're not going to accept anybody. But if you accept rules, if you accept people based on the same way God accepts you, grace, is grace the context, then you're not part of the God squad. They went out and planned to kill Christ that day. It's the first mention of Jesus' death clearly mentioned in the book of Mark. And so begins sort of a dark cloud 
comes over the Son now for the rest of the gospel because we know the intent of the Pharisees. You know, the flow of Mark so far has simply been Jesus appearing on the scene, offering the kingdom to Israel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but you have to repent to get it. And then he saw, uh, remember we saw that he anticipated the rejection of the nation. And now very clearly, Mark says, it's more than simply rejecting him as the Messiah. They want to destroy him. It's taken it even up a notch. Did you notice that Jesus got angry? It's the only mention in the New Testament of Jesus being angry. But I want you to also notice that he's not angry because it's a personal offense. It's angry. He's angry, it says, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. His anger is based on the fact that their heart is hard. And he's grieved because of their response to the Word of God. It's a theme that we see repeatedly in Mark that we will see a number of times. It's first mentioned here with the Pharisees, but we see it not only with the Pharisees, we see it with the disciples. That is the hard heart. What does it mean to have a hard heart? Well, we need to know because it's our big challenge too. We see it, first of all, here with the Pharisees, but we're going to see it with the disciples, and therefore we have to look at it in our own lives. To have a hard heart, according to the Gospel of Mark, comes from basically unrealistic expectations of God. Hardness of heart comes from expectations that God should act as I see fit. And here's the second life principle that we can glean from this text. We harden our hearts when we limit God to our expectations. We harden our hearts when we limit God to our expectations. That's what they were doing with Jesus. You're not doing what's lawful on the Sabbath. We define what's lawful, not just the Bible, but all these other rules that we've added to the Bible. Now that gets convicting because that's how we are. Well, there's the Bible, but then there's also all the traditions that we have as well. Not only in our church, but in our homes and in our personal relationships. It's funny when you go to another country. I don't know if you've ever traveled to a country outside of the United States, but when you do, you see weird people. <laughs> they don't act like you act. They don't have traditions like you do. They do funny things before they pray. They pray in a funny way. They may not even pray. Um, but you know what? There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. When we were in Israel just this, this past time, I looked at some of the Jews that were doing things that I thought maybe looked funny, and I thought, I wonder if Jesus did things like that. Did Jesus act in his culture in a way that I would think is weird? Because it's not my culture. And yet it was Jesus. You know he did. You know he did. When we go outside of the scripture and say, you know what, my friend, you're wrong because you're not acting like me. We're no better than the Pharisees who added the Mishnah to the Word of God. That is a hard truth. We harden our hearts when we limit God to our expectations. What are some of the false expectations that we have of God? They had some of Christ. What are the ones we have of the Lord today? 
Well, we expect that faithfulness will guard us from suffering. It's not true. It's not true. You will suffer if you're faithful. We expect that greatness means that we should be served by others. That's what the disciples thought, as we'll see as the book continues. But the reality is, one of Mark's major themes is that true greatness comes from a heart of a servant, not one to be served. See, we set ourselves up for great disappointment in life if our hopes are the standard. Our hopes are dashed because they are hopes that we have created. They're not necessarily hopes that God has given. Like the Mishnah, we have attached our own expectations to the Word of God. We kind of form what you might call a, uh, a Martha Stewart Christianity. Listen to this letter I found some time ago. It's not really by Martha, Martha Stewart, but it sort of sounds like it is. She writes, This perfectly delightful Christmas note is being sent on paper that I made myself. Since it snowed last night, I got up early and made a sled with old barn wood and a glue gun. I hand-painted it in gold leaf, I got out my loom, and I made a blanket in peach and mauve. By then it was time to start making the placemats and the napkins for my 20 breakfast guests. Before I moved the table into the dining room, I decided to add just a touch of the holidays, so I repainted the room in pinks and stenciled gold stars on the ceiling. Then while the homemade bread was rising, I took antique candle molds and made the dishes exactly the same shade of pink to use for breakfast. These were made from Hungarian clay, which you can get in almost any neighborhood Hungarian craft store. Well, I've got to run. I need to finish the buttonholes on the dress that I'm wearing for breakfast. I'll get out the sled and I'll drive this note to the post office as soon as the glue dries on the envelope I'll be making. And I hope my breakfast guests don't stay too long because I have 40,000 cranberries to string with bay leaves before my speaking engagement at noon. Your friend, Martha Stewart. P.S. When I made the ribbon for this typewriter, I used one-eighth inch gold gauze. I soaked the gauze in a mixture of white grapes and blackberries, which I grew, picked, and crushed last week just for fun. You know, Martha Stewart... We laugh about uh, the, the, the eccentric, unrealistic life that, you know, her program often uh, held up for women as the standard. There's not a woman in here that doesn't have these desires, and yet there's not a woman in here that knows this is not reality at all. And yet, how many times do we start our day with this much expectations on ourselves? We set ourselves up for failure when we expect that our Christianity is going to look like Facebook. It doesn't. Facebook and Instagram and... You guys don't do that, do you? Facebook and Instagram? Of course not. You do Facebook. I know you do that. But nobody ever puts reality on Facebook and Instagram. We only make it look good with the stenciled gold stars on the ceiling. Now the reality, according to one study in England. A therapist named Christine Weber put together a study of the British people and she discovered that 10% of the British people believe they would be better off dead. She said, quote, sadly it comes as no surprise to me that so many people are unhappy. 
it seems that people's lives don't live up to their extremely high expectations. That's the, that's the phrase that caught my eye, extremely high expectations. Sheila Walsh, you've probably heard of her, Christian artist from yesteryear. She was co-host of a program, Christian program on television, and she got a letter from a young woman in her 20s who had cancer and multiple sclerosis. And this young woman said, quote, sometimes I watch your program and I'm, and I'm helped, and sometimes I want to take off my shoe and throw it through the screen. Sheila Walsh was so fascinated by this lady's honesty that she called her up. And on the phone, this lady said, one of the things I hate about what you do on your program is you always present people whose marriages get better in 10 minutes, people who get healed, people who have the nice packaged answers. She said, what about the people like me who are dying and still love God? What about the people who take very few steps, but every step leaves a big impression in the snow because it costs every ounce of strength they have left? Sheila Walsh said, this woman changed my perspective. I think one of the greatest gifts we can give is just a dose of reality, that life down here is disappointing, that God doesn't always give us answers, but he always does give us himself. Remember after Jesus' resurrection, he was walking on the road and he disguised himself from a couple of his disciples. Remember on the road to Emmaus? And in their initial conversation, Jesus asked questions, all of which he knew the answers to, but his point was to get them to talk. And he asked them, what's got you so down? And the text says they stopped and stood still. You can just almost see them, they're walking along, What's bothering you? And they just kind of stop. Are you, they said, are you the only one who hasn't heard about Jesus? We had hoped he was the Messiah, but he died. What's more, it's now the third day. And some women say that he's raised from the dead. And Jesus goes on to rebuke them and to show them that is exactly what God's plan was. And I mention that because from that reality and from the text that we've read today, there is a very helpful perspective that I hope that you never forget. And I tell you, I've got to remind myself of it very often because it's easy to forget. And it's this, then when you come to a place where you feel like life or your expectations of life have let you down, one of two things has occurred. One of two things has occurred. First of all, it was either a hope that God never intended like maybe, like the Mishnah, you have added to the Word of God something God never meant to promise you. Or, God did mean to promise it to you, and it's just not time. It's one of those two. It's either a hope that God never intended or the hope is right, but our expectation of how it's to happen and when it's to happen is wrong. There's a lot of people that still walk with Christ to Emmaus, they walk these roads of life with Jesus, but they're deeply disappointed in him because he doesn't act like he wants. Johnny Erickson Tata said these words, We ask less of this life because we know full well that more is coming in the next. The art of living with suffering is just the art of readjusting our expectations in the here and now. Isn't that a great quote? We ask less of this life because we know full well that more is coming in the next. 
The art of living with suffering is just the art of readjusting our expectations in the here and now. The life lessons we've gleaned from the text today, I'll mention once again. We tend to base our decisions on the whole Bible. We, we need to base our decisions on the whole Bible, not just our favorite parts. We harden our hearts when we limit God to our expectations. You know, we don't just come and open this book for trivia. To be smarter or to say, Lord, confirm my biases. But we come and we open this text and we say, Lord, change my heart. Show me. Show me what it is that I can follow you with faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we've all known the God Squad in our lives, those who point their fingers at us, <clears throat> accusing us of the very things they're doing. We've all been the God Squad. We've all violated our own standards. We've added to your word our own hopes that aren't necessarily in your word, and then we wonder why we're so disappointed with life. In those moments, Lord, as we walk the road, to Emmaus with Christ as he walks with us and talks with us along life's narrow way. We pray that you would remind us that whatever hopes we have added to the Bible really need to just fall away. And then if the hopes truly are in Scripture, remind us it may just not be time yet. And uh, you may be working in our hearts to bring a change that needs to be there. Thank you for Jesus' grace in these uh, verses we've read, for his gentle grace with this man with the withered hand, for his firm and yet at the same time even gracious response to the religious leaders who didn't get it. And we're thankful for your grace in our lives, Lord, when we don't get it, which is so often. Thank you for your love. And remind us of that love, of your grace, each day this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.